always having to explain that I'm not that kind of Christian. You ever feel that way when you're talking about your faith with other people? Uh, And it's not just kind of one direction that this goes. There are so many different kinds of people in the world and so many ways that the gospel of Jesus has been corrupted and perverted that it's hard to share the gospel with somebody without backpedaling a little bit and saying, okay, that is not what we believe, but here is what we do believe. Uh, an earnest person might come from, from an Arab country like Iran or Saudi Arabia uh, it, it, from a Muslim background, and they may have learned about the West through TV programs. And so you may share the gospel with somebody like this, and they may earnestly say, yeah, I understand Christianity. Uh, you guys believe in Western capitalism and in sexual freedom and romantic love, and that's why you guys are so greedy and immoral, right? That, that may be how they look at us, because they have learned about us just from the way that the West is presented on, on TV. Or you may meet somebody who has lived in Africa for their whole life. And some of you who are from Africa may have this happen when you talk to your relatives back home. And they may say something like, yes, we we understand the claims of the gospel. If I will come to Jesus and have faith in him, uh, I will have all of my bills paid and the Lord will heal my daughter from AIDS. That's the promise of the gospel. Because they've heard a prosperity gospel preach instead of, of the real gospel. Uh, or you might talk to somebody who grew up in a, in a really uh, emotionalistic youth group and is kind of jaded, and they're like, yeah, I, I know the church. Yeah, you go there every week, you get your emotions manipulated, you go down the altar again, and you get forgiven for your sins again, and then you fall back into the same sins over and over. Yeah, I know the gospel really well. Uh, somebody on the American left might say, yeah, you're a Christian. I understand you guys. You guys hate homosexuals. You hate transgender people. And somehow you think the purpose of your religion is making America great again. Or someone from the far right might say, yeah, I know you Christians. You guys are cozying up with the cultural elites and compromising on everything you believe in order to have prominence in the public square. And, and what's hardest about all these things is that for all of these misconceptions, there are real people out there bearing the name of Christ who represent those misconceptions. There are real prosperity gospel preachers out there in the name of Jesus Christ preaching the prosperity gospel. And so sometimes we will deal with low-level frustration from people we talk to or just outright prejudice from people we talk to. And one of the hardest parts is we have to say, Yeah, you know, actually, I understand why you might think that. We haven't really done the best job of presenting the gospel to the outside world. Welcome to Calvary, by the way. Big pick-me-up for the beginning of the sermon. Uh, my, My point is that we are in many ways today living in a mess that has been created by people before us who called themselves Christians, who bore the name of Christ and and did it poorly. And part of what we're trying to do is reconcile with that and figure out how to move forward. And that has left a lot of you, I know, with different feelings. Uh, If you're here, that says something about you, that you're holding on to hope that Jesus is real and you want to know him and worship him. But there are many who are not part of the church anymore. They've become so just disgusted with how the church has acted They don't want to set foot into a church. They're trying to find some way to walk with Jesus and not walk with the church at the same time. Are there some of us here who are just kind of discouraged and, and disheartened because this is, is this what being a Christian has become? 
Uh, some of us are young enough to see how Christians have acted on the internet in the last few years, and some of us are old enough to know that those problems aren't new. They were happening in churches and at church business meetings, and there were church splits since the beginning of the church, really. And in that way, in that kind of mess that we are trying to deal with, uh, we are a lot like the people that we're going to read about today. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are at the end of the book of Genesis, and this is where Jacob, the great leader of the church, of the people of God, calls his 12 sons together, the 12 tribes of Israel together, and he gives them his parting words, their inheritance and final blessing. And as he does that, we learn a lot about ourselves as the people of God. Now, so far, we've gone individually through a few of these people and the words that they received because we learned what those people were like in the story, and now we see their actions fall upon them. We kind of zoomed in on some of these people and saw what we could learn. Today, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to zoom out. We're going to look at the whole story, the whole collection together, the whole mixed bag of Jacob's sons. And we're going to ask, well, what does that teach us about us as the church, and how might the Lord encourage us? I think by the end, the Lord may have an encouraging word with any of you that resonated with what I just said about all of the mess that there is in the church today, and how difficult that makes it to follow the Lord and be a Christian. So let's read together Genesis 49. It's a poem, and it's a long poem. And so before we get in there, to help you get all the way through, I want you to see how dramatic this scene is. Jacob is the, the patriarch of this family. They're about 70 people big now, and he's the leader in the family. The end of his life has come, and, and he's dying. So imagine the oldest, most revered person in your family is on their deathbed, and you're gathered around them to watch them die. But they still have the strength to speak, and so they single you out one by one, and they speak to each of you a word that reveals your deep character to all the people around you accurately and predicts your future and the future of the children that are going to come after you. Right? This is a fateful moment for these people. And by the end of it, Jacob is going to draw his feet up in the bed and he's going to breathe his last breath. So in this sacred moment this family is having together, let, let's walk through it with him. Then Jacob called his sons and he said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up into your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up into my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture is the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea and he shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Crouching beneath the sheepfolds, he saw the resting place was good and the land was pleasant and he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, and he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessing of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb. The blessing of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, and the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Through Jacob's last words, the Spirit encourages Christians who are weary of the mess that the church has become. As I said before, this is a dramatic scene for this family. The leader of the family is dying and he is passing on the legacy to the children. And as he does, he is giving to them words that are on one hand suitable to them. That's what it says later. Each one got a blessing that was suitable to him. So, it corresponds with each of their characters. And also, early in verse 1 and verse 2, he says, I'm going to tell you what will become of you. So these are words that predict their future and their son's future after them. So each of these 12 words then correspond with the character of the person that's receiving them. And they tell them what their descendants will be like. And there we see a window into one way that the world works, right? Children reap what their fathers have sown. Right? We often receive what our parents have handed down to us. If you had been born to different parents than you were born to, 
the details of your life today would look different. Right? So the way that we act will affect the generations that come after us. And as Jacob does this, what we see is he just lays bare all of the flaws in the people of God. We read the accounts of what they're like and what is going to become of them, and all we can do is throw our hands up in the air, thank God for the few that turned out pretty well, and just say, this family's a mess. In fact, that's a closing of a theme that's been true for this whole book. Here we are, second to last chapter, and the same thing that has been happening the whole time is happening again, right? Noah saved the world in a flood. And then he planted a vineyard and he got drunk, right? It's a disappointment, right? And then Abraham received God's call and he moved in faith and it inspired us so much. And then he gave his wife away to a king's harem twice and then took a slave wife for no other purpose but to impregnate her. He disappointed us. And then Isaac did some similar things, but not all of those things and disappointed us. And then Jacob turned out to be this real trickster of a guy. And he takes four wives and his family winds up so divided. The people of God by this point have become a real mess. And Jacob isn't pulling any punches here. He's honest about it. But he gives us words as well that help us to deal with it. What I'm going to do here this morning, I'm going to fill out that picture. We'll walk quickly through all 12 of those sons. We'll see that we do reap what is sown before us. And also see with each one of them that we have people like this in the church today. And then we'll ask, okay, what do we do about it? Does the Spirit have any words for us here that help us deal with the disappointment, the mess that the church often is? Let's look at the 12 sons one by one. Reuben, we've talked about a little bit before. Uh, we actually spent a whole sermon on him and on Simeon. Uh, Reuben was the firstborn, but he was not a good man. He did some very wicked things. And so as the prominent one in the family who used his authority very poorly to hurt people, uh, he was toppled right, and scattered. And we have leaders like that in the church don't we? We've kind of given the roost to a number of Rubens and it has come back upon us. And similarly, we read next in verses 5 to 7 about Simeon and Levi, who are not twins, but they act together. And there's a story before, we've explored it pretty thoroughly, of a day when they acted with great wrath and rage, just a rash anger against something that a, that a prince did that was very wrong. Uh, and they went and slaughtered a whole city over this in wrathful vengeance. And as a result, they are going to be scattered throughout Israel. Both of these tribes won't have territory in Israel. They'll just live scattered throughout the cities. And we saw there that lesson that, that acting in rashness and anger like that, it, it divides people. It leads to scattering and we have people like that in the church today, don't we? Who act, act rashly and act in anger. And some of us have seen churches split and scatter over the rash words and the angry words that are spoken in them. In verses 8 through 13, we read about Judah, who was at first a wicked leader, but he repented and he became a self-sacrificial, even Christ-like leader. And so as a result, one of his descendants is going to be the selfless, sacrificial king who will rule forever. We know who that is, right? It's Jesus Christ, the one we're gathered here to worship today, a son, a descendant of Judah. And if we're honest, we thank God we've got many leaders in the church that are just like that, self-sacrificial 
And they got there by turning from sin. If you know a godly, sacrificial leader in the church, he or she was not born that way. No, leaders like that are made. They repent of sin like Judah did, and they live and lead like he did. Then we get into sons that we don't know as much about. Zebulun, we we never really got to know him. But we'll learn in verse 13, evidently skilled at sailing and trade, and his territory is going to settle near the coast, though not on it. And at points, it will extend all the way to the coast and all the way to Sidon, and they'll become very prominent as traders and sailors, and good at trade, good at getting things places and delivering. And we have good people like that in the church as well, people who are just good at making the connection and making trade happen for everybody to benefit. We've got even truck drivers in the church today and sailors and people who get things done and get things places, and we thank God for that. We read next about Issachar in verses 14 and 15. We also didn't know much about him in the story. He he didn't say much in the story. Evidently, he didn't pull his weight that's what these words are saying. He's a, he's a strong donkey. He sees how good and how nice the field is, and he just bows his head down and refuses to do any work. And the result of that is that though his descendants will settle in a good fertile land, they will wind up slaves because they refuse to pull their weight and do the work and get what they can out of the land. And if we're honest, worldwide, maybe even here, we've got people like that in the church, right? People who don't pull their weight and it comes back down on them poorly. Dan is next in verses 16 and 17. We don't know much about him in the story. Evidently, he was small, but when he struck, he struck hard. And so his descendants will be the same way, like a viper in the path, not very big. You may not notice him until he strikes. His tribe will be small through most of Israel's history, But when they rise up, they strike. There were a few stories in the book of Judges, one where they conquer a city quickly. And you may know Samson, one of the most famous judges of all. He comes from the tribe of Dan, and when he comes, he strikes like a viper. So at this point, you're starting to get a picture, right? It's a mixed bag. Some really good people that the Lord has done much with. And some people that you don't want to go near. And it's the people of God. Jacob has said a lot of words about him, and so he just pauses in verse 18, and he takes a breath. He basically looks up, and he says, God help us, right? We're a mess. He looks up, and he says, Lord, I wait for your salvation. Takes that breath and continues on. Verse 19, he speaks of of Gad. Uh, Raiders will raid there, but he shall raid at their heels. Evidently, Gad got knocked down a lot, but he had grit, and he got back up. And his descendants will do the same thing. They'll live on the outskirts where they are vulnerable to raiders and people coming in and conquering them all the time. But they will strike back and get their land back every time. There will be people who are knocked down, but they have grit. And we got people like that in the church, don't we? People who are knocked down with some hard knocks, but they've got grit and they get back up with the strength that God gives them. In verse 20, Asher is evidently worthy of a very blessed harvest. His tribe will settle in a very rich coastal plain that not only will produce a lot for them, but because they're on the coast, they get to send ships out and trade all that stuff and get even more stuff. Something about his character evidently is worthy of that kind of blessing. 
In verse 21, another son we never really got to know, Naphtali. He says he's a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Hebrew is a beautiful language, but not a very clear language. And this is an example of that. What does that mean? Uh, Probably one of two things. Either they will be a very fertile people, like make lots of babies, or the words that they speak will be like beautiful fawns coming out. So they'll either be really well-spoken or really fertile people. Uh, Whichever one it means, we've got people like that in the church today. Uh, Have you ever heard the words spoken in the church, she's pregnant again, right? We have people like that in the church. Or maybe you've heard the words spoken, wow, Nobody says it like he does, right? We've got some well-spoken people in the church as well. Moving on, we go to Joseph. Joseph, we know. We got to know him, right? And he gets lots of words. He was promising, then he was unfairly attacked. But then the Lord lifted him up and made him strong. And his descendants will be the same way. They will be promising at first many judges coming from his sons. uh, But then they'll kind of be forgotten and you'll feel like they're getting the short end of the stick. Until Israel divides and the northern kingdoms get their own kings. And those kings are sons of Joseph and are politically more dominant than the southern kings. So similar rise, fall, rise dynamic in his descendants. And many people in the church are just like him, knocked down unfairly, but given strength by God, and they rise back up in God's power. So we've got wicked leaders. We've got people who are too rash in their anger. We've got people who repent of bad leadership and become sacrificial. We've got good traitors. Uh, We've got people who don't pull their weight. We've got people who are small but strike hard. We've got people who are knocked down, but they have grit. We have people who are worthy of great blessing and look around and say, God has blessed us so much we got people who are very fertile, people who speak beautiful words, people like Joseph who are attacked, but the Lord brings them back up. And then lastly, people like Benjamin. Benjamin was kind of the little brother in the story, and his, brother was, or his father was really protective of him. And so we think of him as this little helpless boy, but evidently he was quite ferocious himself. Right? He says he is a ravenous wolf. He's, he's not the small little brother, but he's powerful. His descendants will be the same way, lauded for their military accomplishments. And one of the most wolf-like leaders, King Saul, comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So you get a full picture there, right? There's some really wise people among the people of God. And too often, we're foolish, and do things we shouldn't do, and the the total picture is a mixed bag, kind of a mess. And our fathers wind up reaping bad things, and we sow what they reap, and then we reap bad things and hand that down to the next generation, and they have to sow that. So we would add that up so far to say the people of God are sometimes wise, but too often foolish, and we reap the fruit of that together, right? Because we're a team, we're in this together. That's been a theme in Genesis the whole time, right? God's people have just kept disappointing us. And now here they are, all gathered on one page, and the picture is not pretty. But it helps us understand the world around us, doesn't it? We look around, and and some of the things our fathers have built in this generation are wonderful and wise. Some of our fathers have built wonderful seminaries that train men of God in the truth, 
Uh, I am so thankful that I went to seminary when I did and Paul and Ian are going when they are going now because it's like a golden age of beautiful seminaries that proclaim the word of God and train ministers to trust in the word of the Lord. My generation didn't build that, right? That was handed to us by wise people who built good institutions. Uh, Another good example of of a father who just handed wonderful things down to us would be Adoniram Judson. Much like the people of Gad, he he went off to the the land of what we call today Myanmar to bring the gospel, a first missionary there. And it was years, almost a decade before he had his first convert, just constantly knocked down. But he had grit like Gad, and he kept getting back up, and he kept sharing the gospel again. And eventually he led one person to Christ, and that person led many people to Christ. And those many people led many people to Christ. And today there are Chin churches all over Indianapolis, back here in the States, who are the descendants of those people that Ananiram Judson shared the gospel with. Right? A great man of great grit who has handed down so much to the church. When we look at this picture of people who speak beautiful words like Naphtali, if that's indeed what it means, some of us would think back to Billy Graham and say, like, nobody says it like Billy Graham said it, right? He just preached it so powerfully. Or when we see people like Judah repenting of bad leadership and following the Lord, you think of people like Chuck Colson, uh, who was Richard Nixon's dirty work guy, his hatchet man in the White House, right? A very Judah-like character. But in prison, he repented of his sins, came to Christ, and led many, many prisoners throughout the country to Jesus Christ. there, There are some wise and good people among the church. And at the same time, We have let a lot of Reubens rule the roost and how it is coming back down upon us. We have had wolf leaders like Benjamin rise up. We have shown Simeon and Levi's rash anger in public discourse and sometimes in church business meetings, and we reap the fruit of it when we do of it. And so much more, right? So the people of God are sometimes wise, too often foolish, and we reap what we sow. And so when we look at that mess sometimes, especially in the last couple years when it's been really heightened, you can see that, what I hear from some people is, why am I still a Christian, right? Like after seeing so many scandals, why am I still part of this church? Or if you're not a Christian, you may be asking, why would I become a Christian if this is what the Christian life is like? And that's the question I want to spend the rest of this morning answering, because Jacob doesn't just ask that question. He gives the answer right here in this story. It's in two places. I'll show you. The first is in what is called a center line. A center line is something your 12th grade English teacher would have loved to tell you about. It's when there's a long poem, and about halfway through, the, some, some random words are in there that are basically an admission that this is a long poem and you need a break. So we take a break from the poem. The poet says something else for just a moment. We catch our breath and we go back into the poem. And it sounds like whatever that center line is, is out of place. And you think, well, that was random. Why was that in there? But it actually carries great meaning for the meaning of the poem. 
About halfway through that, Jacob does this here in verse 18. He has finished giving his first several blessings. He's about halfway through, and he just stops. And he says, I wait for your salvation, Lord. Then he takes a breath, and then he keeps going. Now, that sounds out of place. Like, that's not what he's talking about. All of a sudden, he talks about that, and then he goes back to what he was talking about. Well, that's very important for the meaning of this text. He says it there, and then he shows it with his instructions. Starting at verse 29 to the end, he stops with the blessings, and he gives them his last will. What do I want you to do with my body when I die? And he says, we own one piece of land back home in Canaan. We're in Egypt now. We know what's going to happen here. But back home in Canaan, we own one piece of land. And I don't want you guys to bury me here. I want you to bury me back home in Canaan. And he gives them really clear instructions about this. Like, he delineates it out many times. They only own one piece of land. They know what he's talking about. The field Abraham brought. The one he bought from the Hittites. The one he bought from Ephron, the Hittite. The one that Sarah and Abraham are buried at. The one that Isaac and Rebekah, I mean, just over and over he clarifies. If you guys pick the wrong cave, it's your own fault, right? Like, I am telling you where to bury me. He really wants to be buried in that spot in the promised land. Why is that important to him? Well, because he has already articulated confidence that God is going to deliver them from Egypt. They're in Egypt now, and they know what's going to happen. The Egyptian people are going to enslave them, and they'll spend 400 years there. And then the Lord, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, will deliver them out. He will rain down plagues upon their oppressors. He will deliver them through the Red Sea as he parts it. He will work mighty miracles along the way. And Jacob says, I am waiting for that deliverance. That's what he said in the center line. And so since I'm waiting for that deliverance, and that's how I'm dying, waiting for it, I want you guys to bury me in the place where he's going to deliver us to. Another way to say this is when the Lord delivers you from Egypt, my bones are going to be in Canaan waiting for you. That's how confident I am, he says, that the Lord is going to deliver us. So with that kind of hope, Jacob can draw his feet up into the bed. He said his last words, and he dies a content and happy man. That's not the condition he was in when we last saw him. When we last saw him, it was 17 years earlier, and he was a bitter old man. His words were, few and evil have been my days, right? And you could just see the snarl in his face when he said it. But now, he's got confidence that even though his sons are a mess, even though this is not the family that you want to leave behind when you go, He can say, I've got confidence because you guys may be a mess, but the Lord's going to deliver you. So his confidence is not in how strapping and awesome his sons are. His confidence is in the fact that the Lord has promised to deliver them. That is why I am still a Christian. Because my hope is not in how promising we are as a people. And my hope is not in how promising the church is around the world. No, our great hope is that the Lord has promised to deliver us. Today, we look around and we say, the best thing about us is not us. 
It is our God and his promise to deliver us. And what we're reading here in the first book of the Bible is that it has always been that way. The best thing about us has never been us. We have always been a disappointment. But the Lord doesn't deliver us based on how awesome or disappointing we are. The Lord delivers us based upon his promises. And so what was true of Jacob, the hope that was burning in his heart as he died, I know the Lord will deliver us. I wait for his deliverance. I even want you to bury me in the place that he's going to deliver us to. That hope lives on in us today. This exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus, when the people are rescued from Egypt and all the plagues come down upon Egypt and the Red Sea is parted, the prophets will use that imagery later to refer to the Lord coming back, to Jesus coming back, and it being as big of a deal as that exodus was, the waters parting, the plagues raining down. But it uses that imagery, not looking back to the Exodus, looking forward to Jesus' return. And so today, we can look around and say, yeah, we're a mess, right? Like, we're disappointing, yeah. But the Lord is going to deliver us, and it is going to be mighty. Now, if you can put your hope there, then you won't be despairing when the church disappoints you again and again. And again, because your hope isn't in there anymore, that your hope is in the Lord who's going to deliver you. When he comes back, he is going to perfect his church and make us everything that we were meant to be. And he does not save based on how great we are. He saves based on our faith in him and his promises to us. So what this all comes down to then, if you want to say it in longer form, the people of God are often wise, too often foolish, and we reap what we sow but the Lord will deliver us. And that's where we place our hope. What that means for you, day in and day out, right? You're going you're gonna to keep walking around this, this earth until the Lord takes you home. You're going to continue being part of the church and it's going to disappoint you. And you're going to continue disappointing yourself. And so what that means practically is that the heart you need to carry toward the church and even toward yourself would be disappointed but not despairing. You see the difference? There's one thing to say, okay, we have disappointed ourselves. I have disappointed the Lord. It's another thing to say, okay, this isn't worth it. What a disappointment we are. I am out, right? What a disappointment I am. I'm done trusting in the Lord. I give up. Why would he ever have any confidence in me or any love for me? So when it comes to the way we look at the worldwide church, The way we look at our home, Calvary Baptist, and the way you look at yourself, if you're a believer in Jesus, disappointed but not despairing. I can remember when I left home for college, um, on one hand, I was on fire for the Lord, had zeal. On the other hand, I was kind of a, a mess theologically. I didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and a number of other things, but I still loved Jesus. And a lot of that got sorted out in college because I met a group of friends that loved the Lord. They taught me so much. I, I got part of a really big college ministry that taught me so much about what it meant to follow the Lord earnestly. And my convictions became sealed. I started following him with an earnestness and with a fear of God. And then when one of the leaders in that college ministry turned out to be uh, just a monster of a person. I was shocked. Like, 
This is, this is the people of God. We're supposed to be holy. Like, this, that's not what's supposed to happen. And then in that friend group, like the closest, one of the close friends that I really learned a lot from, uh, called me up about five years later, and he said, Dave, I need to be honest with you. That whole time that we were friends, I knew you were learning so much from me. Uh, I was living in hypocrisy. I was doing this with this person and this and this the whole time and keeping it a secret. And the Lord's moving me to repent of it now and to be honest with you now, but the whole time he was living as a hypocrite. And it just kind of came upon me in a few steps like that. Oh, we're, we're not the perfect holy people that we're supposed to be. And it is so easy when you're young to have that naivety that the church is supposed to be. It is supposed to be this wonderful place. But some of us have been around long enough to see that it gets nasty sometimes. And so I wouldn't have those of you who are young walk out with a naivety. It can be nasty in the church. But the heart we need to keep is disappointed in the nastiness, not despairing. Because our hope isn't in how great those 12 tribes are. Our hope, like Jacob, is looking up to the Lord and saying, the Lord will deliver us. The best thing about us isn't us. The best thing about us is the God who has called us and who has saved us. So when you look at the last couple of years and you see how poorly a lot of churches handled COVID and how poorly a lot of Christians handled themselves on the internet in that period, it's okay to be disappointed by that, right? We, did, we didn't do great. We didn't handle that one very well. There's a lot of division. But despair would be to leave the God who says, I will deliver you. I know you're a mess. You've been a mess the whole time, but I will come and I will deliver you. That kind of spirit means something for us as a church as well. Uh, There is a temptation in an area like this uh, where you got a lot of churches to choose from, right? Any of you guys, if you wanted to, you could be at another church this morning. You get to choose where to go to church. And so it's tempting for church leaders to put all of our energy into telling you how awesome this church is and why you should go here and not to the other church, right? And this is even harder because, I mean, from my heart, you know, as the, all the choices go in Greenwood, if you're going to pick a church, I actually think this one is a pretty good one. So I do want to tell you how wonderful our church is. But if I do that too much, we'll disappoint you, right? Because we're not perfect. And so we hold membership classes before we come in, and, and I do my best to just disappoint everybody in the room and tell them everything that is wrong with us. Because I don't want you to join our church, get deep into church life, and then get disappointed. I want you to get disappointed and then join our church and get deep into church life, right? Because the people who come in with that kind of spirit tend to last for the long haul, and they tend to do great things for the Lord because they don't get discouraged when the church is a disappointment. That is why, since I came here, I have done my best not to boast about what a great church we are, though I would have plenty to say if I wanted to, but to boast endlessly, even obnoxiously, about how great our God is, right? Because he will deliver us, and he is the best thing about us. That means that the best thing about us is true of every gospel-preaching church. And ultimately, there's not that much special about this body, right? Every gospel-preaching church worships the same Lord that we do. And with humility, we praise God for that, and we say we will be one more, and we will proclaim with all we have how great he is. These words are also why anyone who is listening to a message like this 
in their living room instead of in church because they're disappointed with the church, not for health reasons or some good reason, but because they're just jaded at what the church has become, needs to come back to church. Right? Because staying away from the people of God because they are a disappointment is to place your hope in the wrong place. No, our hope isn't in the people. Our hope is in the God who we come here to worship. We gather with his people because he says, when two or more are gathered, I am there with you. And that is not a promise that is based on how awesome or disappointing we are. We trust in his promises, and so we gather with him. If you're a believer then in Jesus Christ, what this means for you personally is that you can handle your own disappointment with yourself in the same way. One thing I hear a lot when talking with people is, is a lot of us are just disappointed in how slowly we are growing in Christ. You, you might hear a, a 22-year-old say, like, I'm an adult now, I have a job. I really thought I would have kicked these three sins that I started falling into when I was 12. Why are they still playing? I thought it would be farther along by now. And you might in the same day hear an 80-year-old here say, I have been following Christ for 65 years. Why do I still get angry with my wife? Like, how, how have I not kicked every last sin as long as I have followed him? We can get disappointed with ourselves, and sometimes we do things that are disappointing. What's the spirit to have about that? Well, the same as with the local church, the same as with the worldwide church. Do what you can to change and be everything the Lord wants you to be. It's okay to be disappointed. It's not okay to despair because the best thing about you isn't you either, right? The best thing about you is the Lord who has saved you. So put your hope in him and let him lead you and guide you all the way home. Let me close with a few words to any of you who are not followers of Jesus. I see some visitors this morning and I don't know where your faith is. Uh, I just want to ask you a question. If, If you're not a Christian, is part of the reason why just the the disappointment that the church is. I once saw a bumper sticker, God, save me from your followers, right? Is that, is that the spirit that is holding you back from coming to Jesus? You don't like his people. Let me urge you to take your focus off of the people who are a work in progress, to put it nicely, and lift your gaze up to the good God who would receive people like us and show us grace. Because if you see how messed up we are and you see that the Lord has received us, the good news for you is that he will receive you as well. Sometimes I joke with people that I want to put a slogan on our sign. I'm not really going to do this, but it would just be so much fun to put a sign out front that says, finally, a church as messed up as you are. What a church slogan that would be, right? But the point is, if the Lord receives us, he will receive you as well. And he is worthy of coming to and following. What he has done for you is come to earth as a man who is named Jesus. And he's lived a perfect life with no sin. Now, you may be disappointed in every person that you have ever met, but you cannot find fault in him because he lived perfectly. And then even though he was perfect... Even though he disappointed his father not once, he chose to be crushed in the place of his people and just bear their penalty, hung up on a cross and just slaughtered and shamed in front of everyone, bearing 
all of the weight of sin and guilt of everyone who had ever come to him. And then having paid that debt for all of his people, uh, we put him in a grave and we thought it was over. And then he surprised us again. He, he did not disappoint. Uh, he got up out of the grave and, and rose again. A God who does that to secure forgiveness for you and to guarantee eternal life for you. There is someone who is not going to disappoint you. And so I want to call you, if you're jaded with the church, if you're disappointed with the church, come to Jesus Christ. Fair warning, if you do, you will become part of the church. And then, count the cost, right? Be willing to take your cross. You will be bearing with us the shame and the reproach of the people of God. But I want to tell you, he is worth it. Because in him I have found, and the people saying amen around you have found, one who does not disappoint. So come to Jesus and put all of your hope in him. Let's pray.